Thanks for being here, guys, and blessings especially to uh, Joshua. You go through uh, the grad school audition process in these next few months, although we uh, certainly will miss you. None of the schools you're looking at are in Illinois, so uh, that's disappointing for us, but I know exciting for, uh, for you, so, uh, so bless you during that process. One of the things I'm most nervous about during uh, this next stage of fatherhood is the storytelling requirement. Not so much the uh, retelling of classic stories, I'm okay in that area, but the extemporaneous making up stories on the spot. Julie tells me I have to learn this skill because Caroline is gonna ask me to tell her stories before bed and I'm gonna be expected to deliver something masterful. Occasionally, she even asks me to practice by telling her a story before bed, but I usually just pretend that I've already fallen asleep and don't have to do it. <laughs> there are two stories, however, that I believe all of us should be prepared to tell. Two stories that we should be constantly tweaking and telling throughout our lives. And I recommend that we each have a one-minute version and a five-minute version of each of these two stories, and the two stories are your personal story and the Bible's story. In other words, uh, first the story of how God has used various people and circumstances in your life to bring you closer to him, what we sometimes call a personal testimony or faith story, something like that. And second, the story of redemption, the story of the whole Bible. Next week, here at Christ Church, we'll be treated to a musical version of this second story in what has traditionally been called a service of lessons and carols. That is, nine Bible readings or lessons followed by nine carols, nine musical expressions of each of the nine lessons. And today we're going to spend a few minutes preparing for what we're going to hear so that we'll have a sense of how it all fits together in the big picture. And we're going to do uh, two things this morning to prepare. The first thing is we're going to hear the story of the Bible in five minutes, the five-minute version that I myself have sort of tweaked and told over the years. And then second, we're going to notice that within uh, this larger story, the Bible has several subplots. And in particular, we're going to notice four subplots that weave their way through most of the readings in our Lessons and Carols next week. Now, many of us think of, of the Bible as you know, a great literary challenge. It's this big book, and you've got War and Peace, and right up there along with it is uh, the Bible. And it's true that the Bible is uh, great literature. It's universally recognized to have some of uh, the greatest short stories of all times, like the Book of Ruth. Uh, there's great poetry. Uh, there are long extended arguments, like Paul's letter to the Romans. But as a whole, the Bible really has a very simple and accessible storyline. And I'd like to begin this morning by sharing that story with you. Now, your version, your five-minute version, will certainly be a little bit different than mine, and that's perfectly fine. But it would be my hope that all of you would be prepared to tell this story. Because if it hasn't happened already, it will happen. Somebody is going to ask, why are you carrying that book around with you? Why do you go to that Bible study group? You know, isn't that just a hopelessly confusing book that no one really knows what it means? And you can answer by telling a short story that goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Among everything that God created, human beings received the privilege of being created in his own image. The first humans, Adam and Eve, lived at peace with God until they rebelled against him. And from that time on, sin and death spread throughout the world. Cain killed his brother Abel, and humanity became so wicked that God destroyed almost everything in a flood. It was as if he uncreated what he had previously created. God, though, chose to save Noah and his family, along with a few animals in an ark. But the descendants of Noah continued to rebel against God, even trying to make themselves equal with God by building a tall tower at Babel. Out of this mess, God called out to Abraham and promised to institute a recovery plan through him and his descendants. This included Abraham's son Isaac, who was born when Abraham and his wife Sarah were ridiculously old. And it included Abraham's grandson Jacob, who was surprisingly chosen by God, even though he was the younger of the two sons. Jacob, this grandson, was uh, later given a new name, Israel, after struggling with God at night. And he had 12 sons, his favorite of which was Joseph, who was sold by his brothers and ended up in Egypt. After a famine struck the land, though, Joseph was actually able to provide food for his whole family, and they all moved to be with him in Egypt. Eventually, though, these Israelites became enslaved to the Egyptians, and God raised up Moses to lead them out of Egypt. On their way out, God defeated Pharaoh by drowning him and his entire army in the Red Sea. The Israelites went out, and they camped in front of a mountain, Mount Sinai, where Moses met with God and received his law, his instructions, including the Ten Commandments. God also had his people build a tent, which we call a tabernacle, where his presence could come and dwell among them. In order to approach this holy God, he required that his people repeatedly offer sacrifice after sacrifice because they could never live up to his perfect standard. After leaving the mountain, the people traveled to the edge of the land of Canaan, the land promised to their ancestor Abraham. They sent spies into the land who came back and said, all the people are giants, we'll never be able to conquer them, forget about it. And because they did not believe God's promise to them, that generation of Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 more years and then died. Joshua, not Moses, was to lead them into the promised land. Once the people had entered the land and settled there, they were ruled by a series of morally disappointing judges, including the strong man Samson. Eventually, though, the people asked for a king, and Samuel, the last judge, appointed Saul to be the first king. Saul served the Lord for a time, but he eventually grew disobedient, and God chose another king, David, a man after God's own heart. The nation of Israel achieved its greatest success under David and his son Solomon. But after Solomon's wives led him astray, and after his son Rehoboam pridefully oppressed the people, the nation declined, and it eventually split into two parts. The northern kingdom, called Israel, had wicked king after wicked king, and because they served idols instead of God, they were taken away into captivity by the Assyrians, who were the world power at that time. The southern kingdom, called Judah, was always ruled by a descendant of David because God had promised to rule his people through a descendant of David forever. Although the Jews had some good kings and they had prophets 
who urged them to stay faithful, they too eventually turned away from God and were taken captive by the Babylonians, who were the world power after Assyria. Babylon eventually fell to the Persian Empire, and many Jews returned to their homeland to rebuild the temple that Solomon had built originally and to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, the capital city. The Jews, however, never again experienced the prosperity and the success that they had enjoyed under David and Solomon. They also did not experience the glorious days of the Messiah that had been foreseen by the prophets before they went into exile. However, after a new superpower arose from Rome, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of King David. His arrival marked the arrival of the kingdom of God here on earth because God would rule his people through Jesus forever. This rule, however, came about in a much different way than you might expect because Jesus was crucified on a cross like a criminal and after three days he rose from the dead. He appeared to his disciples and he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit to make his presence known among his followers. These followers spread the good news, the gospel, starting in Jerusalem and spreading throughout the entire known world all the way to the great city of Rome itself. They proclaimed that Jesus' death on the cross paid for the sins of the world and that anyone who trusted in him for his or her salvation would become a son or daughter of God. Someday, at a time we can never predict, Jesus will return again to this earth and permanently establish his kingdom when every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. At that time, God will undertake a new act of creation, removing evil and pain from this world for good. And his presence and his glory will fill all of the new heaven and the new earth. Well, that's the basic story that our nine lessons and carols will tell next week in nine scenes. And as I reflected on uh, the readings we'll be hearing uh, during this week, it struck me that within that larger story, four subplots surface again and again in the readings. And this morning, I want to just very briefly tell the story of each of those four subplots so that uh, while you're listening to the service of Lessons and Carols, whether you're able to come here to the Highland Park campus uh, next Sunday or whether you'll be up at the Lake Forest campus uh, on the following Sunday, and I know there will be a few that will be at both as well, uh, that while you're listening to that service, you'll have something to hang your hat on, something to say, you know, I see what's going on here. I know what direction the story is moving in. And the first subplot I want to introduce is the theme of peace. Now, when the story opens, it doesn't seem like peace is something that we're ever going to see because God, in the first scene, promises enmity between the serpent and between the woman, Eve. He promises crushing. He promises striking. It's a life-and-death struggle between two combatants, a life-and-death struggle that we, frankly, all find ourselves in the middle of. And so from the very beginning, from the very first lesson, we wonder, will there ever be peace? Will our struggle against sin and evil in this world ever come to an end? In scene three, though, we meet a king. Isaiah says, you know, these Jewish kings that we've been having, they've been a failure. But another king is coming, a child king, 
He says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And among other titles, he will be called the Prince of Peace. He will be transparent. He will be vulnerable. That same prophet, Isaiah, goes on in scene four to describe the reign of that child king. It's a time when the enmity that we once saw between the serpent and Eve will be a thing of the past. He says, The wolf will live with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra. It's unthinkable. Who can ever imagine a world with such peace and such security? Uh, We spent uh, this last weekend and then part of this last week down with my brother, visiting him and his family in uh, Georgia. And from time to time, they get uh, animals in the house that we as northerners uh, aren't really prepared for. And one evening, I was uh, sitting doing a little bit of work on my computer, and my brother comes up to me carrying his uh, baby son. They have a son who's about the same age as our daughter, Caroline. And he says, would you mind Googling something for me? And I said, sure, what do you want me to look up? He said, would you look up uh, whether scorpions in Georgia are deadly? And I said, why would you like me to look that up? Where did you find a scorpion? And he paused and said, we just found one in the baby's mouth. It had been crawling and like everything else, picked it up and uh, tried to eat it. Well, I, I can scarcely remember a time where I was more shocked than that. And... <laughs> I finally told Julie about it yesterday because I didn't want to break it to her during the sermon, and then I realized that she's in the nursery, and I didn't have to tell her about it, but too late now. We're never going back there. Well, everything turned out to be fine uh, with the baby, no, no sting, uh, and Georgian uh, scorpions are not uh, deadly, but uh, the whole experience helped me to understand this complete reversal that Isaiah is picturing. Imagine a time when a venomous predator is no longer a threat to a baby. That's the picture that Isaiah uses to tell us that the safety and the security resulting from the Messiah's reign is going to be revolutionary, nothing we can even imagine. And in the seventh scene next week from the Gospel of Luke, we hear the declaration that that era of peace that we've been waiting for for so long has finally been inaugurated. When the angels come and declare to those shepherds around Bethlehem, they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. So we start with this conflict, with this enmity between the serpent and Eve, and we end with this unbelievable peaceful rule of the Messiah, the newborn king. So that's one subplot that we can keep an eye on next week. A second subplot that weaves its way through our service of Lessons and Carols is the theme of light. I can remember (laughs) that uh, the same night after the scorpion scare, I had uh, gone to bed and I got up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom, I think. And in a normal circumstance, of course, I would have left all the lights off and just sort of fumbled my way through the hallway. I hate that feeling of turning on the lights suddenly and not being able to see. But that night, I switched on every switch I could find (laughs) The kitchen, the bathroom, the porch light. You know, if there was anything crawling along the floor, I was going to see it in the middle of the night. It was not going to sneak up on me. And back in scene three of our Lessons in Carol's readings, Isaiah pictures something similar. He says, The people walking in darkness 
have seen a great light. He says the people have been groping their way through the darkness, but suddenly they find themselves blinking and squinting from this great light. The darkness of their sin and their rebellion was not enough to keep God from coming and flipping on the light switch. And the darkness of our sin and rebellion this morning also is not enough to keep God's light from shining in our lives. He appeared to those shepherds. That light appeared to those shepherds in scene 7. Right, The angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. That same light appeared to uh, some magi from the east, some students of the stars, who although they were Gentiles, they follow this light that they see past the fake king Herod in Jerusalem and straight to the true king Jesus in Bethlehem. And in scene 9, the climax of our Lessons and Carol service, we as the congregation will read together the words of John's Gospel where he says, The light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. For us, darkness is just the absence of light, right? It's a very neutral thing. If, I, if it weren't daytime and I shut all the lights off in this room, that's what darkness would be, the place where no lights are on. But for John... Darkness isn't just the status quo. It wasn't just the absence of light. For him, darkness is something in itself. It's something opposing the light of the world. So there's a conflict as soon as Jesus shows up. But John says, the light shines in darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Or some translations you you may know, the darkness has not overcome it. And so our lessons in Carol's story ends with the declaration that just as God at one time said, let there be light, and there was light, and he conquered the darkness of the void of the universe at creation. In the same way, at Christmas, he says, let there be light, and there was light, and he overcomes the darkness of our world. He ultimately overcomes the darkness of our own hearts through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Well, it's that same scene scene number nine, the final scene of our Lessons and Carols service, that introduces us to the third subplot that sort of weaves its way through, and it's the theme of God's Word. You remember at the beginning of John's Gospel, he says, in the beginning was the Word. God has been speaking since the very beginning. He spoke the universe into existence. He speaks words of retribution and condemnation in scene one to Adam and Eve and the serpent. But those words turn into words of promise in scene two as Abraham, after obediently uh, binding his son Isaac and almost sacrificing him, he hears God's word that God is going to bless him. He's going to bless the whole world through him. Later, in scene four, we meet a ruler whose words have remarkable power. Isaiah envisions this king, and he says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. I mean, imagine that, a king who does not need any weapons, a king who does not need any army. His rule is enforced by one thing only, the words that come from his mouth. That's all he needs. When this king speaks, it's as if God himself is speaking. And of course, when we come to scene nine, the final scene, we see why that seems to be the case. It's because the king that Isaiah prophesies about is God himself. John says, in the beginning was the word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God has spoken throughout all of history. He spoke the universe into existence. He disclosed himself in creation. He disclosed himself through uh, dreams and visions to the prophet. He, he makes himself known to us in a number of ways. He wants us to know him. But his ultimate self-disclosure is his word, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh who came to live among us. That's his ultimate way of disclosing himself to us. Well, finally, a fourth subplot that weaves its way through our readings is uh, this one-of-a-kind child. Caroline has a book in her collection called uh, On the Night You Were Born, and one of the pages says something like, there has never been anyone like you ever in the world. And I guess that's true, for better or worse. We are each uh, one of a kind. But the Bible looks forward to a child who isn't just unique, but who is one of a kind in terms of how he will affect the world. He's one of a kind in terms of his relationship to God. And of the four subplots we've seen this morning, peace and light and uh, God's word, this is the subplot that pops up most often. I think you'll recognize it in at least seven of the nine scenes from Lessons and Carols next week. It begins all the way back in scene one with God wandering through the garden looking for his children who are hiding from him in fearful shame. So from the very beginning, we're longing for a true son of God, a son who will take the shame away. But hope is quick to arrive through the introduction of the mysterious seed of Eve. The serpent's triumph will not be the last word because his seed will eventually be crushed by hers. So there is hope for humanity after all, despite the fact that sin has entered the world. In scene two, God comes and tells Abraham, sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. Except Isaac wasn't Abraham's only son, which makes us think, What's going on here? Did God forget about Ishmael? Well, Isaac wasn't his only son in terms of uh, the only physical son he had, but he was the only one-of-a-kind, unique son of the promise that he had, this one-of-a-kind son that God intended to bless the whole world through. And after God intervenes and he spares Isaac's life, remember, by uh, offering a substitute ram in his place, he reveals for the first time that the earlier promises that he made to Abraham to bless him and to bless the world through him, those will be uh, made through his seed, the same seed as we saw way back in the first scene with Eve. Next, scene three begins with Isaiah's birth announcement, the birth announcement that we read earlier, the announcement of a king. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We look for a mighty ruler. We look for uh, somebody with great strength and great pomp. But instead, a one-of-a-kind child peers out at us, a humble king, a vulnerable king. Another birth announcement follows in scene five, as the angel appears to Mary and tells her that her one-of-a-kind son is going to have a one-of-a-kind conception, that though she's a virgin, she will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the son she will bear will not only be her son, but he'll be the son of the Most High, the son of God himself. And finally, in scene 9, that son promised to Mary is called by John 
the one and the only, or as uh, many of us know, uh, the only begotten. For God so loved the world that he sent his one-of-a-kind, unique son to us. Our own children are one-of-a-kind. They're irreplaceable to us. That's true. But this son is one-of-a-kind and irreplaceable to the whole world. The seed promised to Eve and to Abraham, the child king promised through Isaiah, has finally arrived in the one-of-a-kind son of God, Jesus Christ. He is the main character of the story we're going to hear through song next week. He's the main character of the story of the Bible. And our hope is that by you joining us next week at Lessons and Carols or throughout the season of Advent, our hope is that he will become the main character in the story of your life as well. And that's uh, my prayer for each of you this morning and as we move uh, into Lessons and Carols and into Advent. Would you join me now uh, in prayer? Lord, we thank you for the wonderful story that you've, uh, that you've shared with us, the story of your son, uh, the story of light shining in darkness, the story of peace uh, coming out of enmity and strife, the story of your word, you disclosing yourself to us through Jesus Christ, and the story of your one-of-a-kind, unique son, who you have sent uh, after years and years of promise, and who we now can rejoice in together um, as heirs uh, of all that you've promised to Abraham and all that you've promised to us. We pray that as we move into Lessons and Carols in these next couple weeks and through the season of Advent, that you would weave your son, your one-of-a-kind son, into our story as well, and that he would impact our lives to the extent that we could never tell our story without including him as well. And that's uh, our prayer and what we ask for this morning. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.